This is Clothes Making Mavens, a sewing podcast about handmade fashion. Hi friends, this is Helena here and I'm excited to introduce our interview today, the lovely Kate from timetosew.uk. Kate is passionate about sustainability and is one of the creators of the Make Your Stash Challenge on Instagram this spring. Lori and Kate got into some important topics that will really interest you if you also have begun to rethink the way our hobby is impacting the environment. They talk about what the word sustainable means in terms of sewing and fashion, what are the best and worst fabrics to use if you care about sustainable practices, and how to cut down on waste fabric and some strategies for using up those scraps. Now, let's hear from Lori and Kate. Well, thanks again, Kate, for agreeing to do this. I know it's, it's, it's such a huge topic, and I know it's a bit daunting to sit down and talk about it and parse it out because there are so many moving parts to it. So thanks for being brave that way. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, I think this is, uh, this is really a key area of interest for me. So... Um, to be able to talk about it Um, and obviously you've seen my blog and on there I try and kind of dissect small digestible chunks because as you say it is such a huge topic that you just don't know where to start and the information is completely overwhelming yeah Uh, you just don't know so yeah um, so So hopefully we'll be able to parse that out a little bit for our listeners today um, yeah. But why don't we start, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I have to say that I've been dying to actually talk to you in person because I know that uh, you mentioned to me that you had, you were born in Canada, raised yeah. in Australia, and you live in the yeah. UK now. So I'm thinking, yes. what does her accent sound like? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think most people in, I've been in the UK for seven years now, and I think so most people here tend to think I'm British unless they're either married to an Australian or have a lot of Australian friends and then they can hear like the twang that's still there that doesn't that doesn't disappear at all but um but apparently my R's tend to roll a little bit as well so you know maybe I'm a little bit Canadian in that sense I I I don't know what it sounds like anymore so you can make your own (laughs) determination of that (laughs) oh that's awesome and so you have a blog called time to sew and uh, tell me about starting that up and 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 basically your your background in sewing um uh, yeah, I'm a home sewer. I love fabric and I'm also a secret environmentalist. Um, and my blog, Time to Sew, is like my creative outlet outside of sewing, where I marry together my love of sewing, um, my need to be green, and a love of writing. Um, so if you want the boring facts about me, um, I'm Australian. I live in London. My day job is in banking. I'm mom to a nearly two-year-old and I have a Dutch boyfriend. So that's the <laughs> that's the boring Boring basic stuff. I don't find that boring at all. That's fascinating. You're truly an international woman of mystery, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. great. So, um, Kate, sustainability. What does sustainability actually mean? So, I think sustainability can mean different things to everybody. And I think if you look at the dictionary definition um, of sustainability, it's basically to say that the ability to continue something at the current rate. And when you look at fashion, um, there are so many horrifying statistics and things out there that talk about fast fashion um, that you really think that it's not sustainable, right? And so there's this whole sustainable fashion movement which has been going on for, for years and years. Now, 
I grew up in the countryside um, in a small town of a thousand people. And I think that inherently gives you an appreciation of nature, the outdoors. Um, my parents live in a really popular area in Australia for hiking. Um, my friends are come from the countryside. I lived in Sydney. Um, so I spent a lot of my university years next to the beach and doing scuba diving and all that kind of stuff. So as a result, I've always been that guy who really, you know, sorts out the recycling, is really into, you know, changing light bulbs to be eco-friendly. I cycle everywhere instead of driving um, and I try and make my own clothes. Um, so in that sense, sustainability to, to me be, means being able to um, continue to have a, a, that kind of lifestyle, but still um, impart some kind of good to the planet and not try and destroy the planet too much um, purely by being alive. I mean, by being alive, we are all just, we're all going to use resources and that's a fact. The population is going to increase and that's a fact. So I think being sustainable means what we can personally do ourselves about it. Right. I think if you look at sustainable fashion, um, and there's so many terms out there, you can talk about ethical fashion, you talk about sustainable fashion, you talk about eco fashion, and they all kind of uh, conjure up different connotations and meanings for people. So it's really down to you as to what you want to do with that, and you decide what's important to you. Right. Yeah, that's that's good advice because I think sometimes when we're faced with uh, an idea like this, it can easily feel too overwhelming. Like, what could I possibly do to make a difference in in this? So, so I think that's a great place to start is to just kind of find out what you can and figure out what works for you. But yeah, let's maybe talk about. Um, what are some of the issues around sustainable sewing or ethical fashion or whatever you want to talk about it? What are some of the issues that people may not may or may not be aware of? Okay, so I think the first thing to note is that by making our own clothes, um, this is often touted as a an antidote to fast fashion, mm -hmm. right? But what I think you cannot deny is the inherent link between fashion and sewing, because at the end of the day sewing is DIY fashion. Well, that's what it means to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, you know, if you have a different, different view of this. And so I think things like the ready to wear fast, um, will, uh, for 2018, which encourages people to sew and buy as much fabric as they need, et cetera, et cetera. So if you take that with a, with a maker's mindset that you will value what you make yourself, then that's a good thing. If you say that, oh, um, by making my own clothes, I'm not participating at all in fast fashion, then that's not necessarily a true statement because your fabric has to come from somewhere, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when we talk about the issues, um, we all wear clothes regardless of whether we make them or not. So there's plenty of things that we can talk about, uh, like textiles and landfill, uh, which you pointed out to me earlier. Um, the fact that people don't know what necessarily happens to their clothes after they get thrown out, mm -hmm. um, that you, even if the idea of throwing your crusty underwear and bras into a, uh, into a recycling bin or, you know, into charity is not for you, um, the end of the day, they do get recycled in mm -hmm. some shape or form. So, you know, don't be embarrassed about that. So, you know, there's textiles landfill, you know, there's many things that you, you shouldn't be throwing your textiles in landfill. Right. Let's just be let's just be frank about that, mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of it can be recycled, as I just mentioned. When you talk about the environmental issues, um, there are so many that you know it's really impossible to know where to uh, where to focus your attention. 
But I think you can break it down into uh, several categories. So um, the first one would be the raw materials, what's actually being used, what fibres are you using, where does that come from? Um, the production, uh, so, the, uh, you know, what emissions are coming from the factories that produce fabric, um, what kind of wastewater pollution is there, um, what kind of greenhouse gas emissions there are. In the finishing of a textile uh, also requires chemicals and processing and a lot of water as well. So, for example, you need to remove um, impurities. Uh, you need to ensure that the fabric that you have will uniformly absorb water, for example, because dyeing requires a treatment with, um, with water. And, for example, like 50% of raw wool is actually impurities. That's what mm -hmm. I've read anyway. Right, um, so. yeah. Have you seen sheep in the state of them on the farms? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, right? So all of that requires processing, requires water, um, and all of that, of course, requires energy um, and chemicals and it produces pollution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so after the finishing, then, of course, there's the dyeing process as well. Um, so that's, that's kind of my main categories when thinking about sort of the environmental impacts of, of textiles. And then, of course, that's not even to mention getting into the whole labour practices part, right? So we've all heard about uh, Rana Plaza in 2013, which is what Fashion Revolution is based on. Mm -hmm. um, there's a documentary called The True Cost, which I would highly recommend watching um, if you haven't already seen it. And that talks, um, that profiles people like uh, even cotton farmers in America or in or in India who suffer from severe health problems because of the chemical usage, et cetera, et cetera. It talks a little bit about pollution and the run-on effect. Um, and of course, the people that are making, making these clothes and making our textiles for us to use. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a dark, murky industry when you start uh, lifting the lid on it. Absolutely. And it's incredible how the industry hasn't hasn't seemed to have changed a lot over many, many decades. So, for example, um, I visited New York City recently and didn't realize the history of the garment district, that there had been a huge uh, fire in the garment district in the 1920s. There were all these small places where people, garment workers, mm. were sewing things up, and they had similar situations to what we have now in um, uh, in, in places overseas where, where the manufacture of garments has been shipped out to, where people mm. are locked into buildings so that they can't leave or go for breaks. Um, and this is what happened yep. at the Rana Plaza. Uh, the building collapsed and people couldn't get out the exits because they were locked in. And what was it? It was something like over 2,000 people died. Um, yeah. And yeah, so that is really a huge issue is who is making the clothes and what kind of conditions are they working under for us to be able to go to H&M and, you know, pick something up to, to go out on Friday night and then and then toss it away, right? Yeah. I think it's really what's really interesting when you look at the, the plight of the of the garment worker is that yeah, they are locked in this cycle. And then when you compare that with the with us who sew and we know how to sew. But it also takes a lot of skill and a lot of effort and a lot of time to produce to produce something nice, mm -hmm. right? So what makes it what is it about sewing for example that makes us feel great and awesome and we can do it and yet we value much less the people who are making our ready-to-wear clothes yeah like i that just that that's just a real disconnect um for me in that in that sense um i mean having said that about ready to wear i mean 
I think what has changed over the decades is that you know the Western countries in have become a lot more affluent. Um, mm -hmm. The the jobs that we do have have significantly changed in the nature of what they are. Most of us are sitting, or a lot of us are sitting behind a computer, or working in services rather than you know having to worry about growing food and mm -hmm. making food mm -hmm. and what are we going to dress ourselves in. So it's a completely different set of set of issues and problems that we have facing us today than than there was uh, you know many years ago. And with that. Uh, with that increase in wealth in in the Western countries, then we 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 demand these things of to give business to the countries, the lower you know the lower income countries who are actually make doing things like you know making these clothes. And if you watch things like the True Cost, then they don't really feel like they have a choice to say no because the competition is fierce, mm -hmm. right? So until we as consumers stop saying, yeah, I'm going to go to H and M or Primark or wherever and buy my $3 t-shirt, and we start to recognize that actually, even if it's cheap for us, it's costing someone somewhere something along the line. Yeah, exactly. I think it's going to be very difficult to, uh, to change. Yeah, I, I think that's a point worth dwelling on the idea of the disconnect between, I mean, we're all so proud of ourselves when we sew something complicated like jeans. Look, I yeah, did it, you yeah. know, and the whole sewing community <laughs> celebrates, and rightly so because it's super hard. Yeah. And yet we'll go and we'll buy, I mean, you can get jeans in some stores around here for $15. I don't yeah. even, you know, we can't even source the materials for that, for that price, let alone the hours of labor that go into it. So, yeah, where is that disconnect between, okay, here's a $15 pair of jeans versus the time and energy and skill that really needs to go into, you know, it's it's no different for someone overseas. They need to put in that time and energy and skill as well. Um, yeah, but for some reason, they're just yeah. being totally undervalued yeah, yeah. for it. I think the one, um, there was one example I saw recently from someone's Instagram profile that really made me quite mad about it, really, because they said, oh, um, I bought this expensive pair of jeans from whatever brand it was, and the hemming on the, uh, and the hemming on the bottom was quite crooked and just generally not well well done, despite it being from a you know, fairly, let's say, mid-priced range kind of brand. And then they made a joke to say, oh, well, maybe, uh, you know, maybe they were just drunk on a Friday night. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, this is really, that just really, yeah, I, I, I don't even, I didn't even know what to say to that. Mm -hmm. it, it took all my might not to reply <laughs> with something inflammatory. But, you know, yeah, as you say, the point is that even we as people who sew are not recognizing necessarily the effort and the time that goes into someone else, you know, making our clothes. Just because it's ready to wear or fast fashion, it doesn't mean there's nothing involved, right? Just because it takes, just because it's being made to a block inside a factory compared to a guy, you know, in West London who's doing couture, it doesn't mean that, you know, there's any less time or dedication in it, I guess. Right. I find that there's a lot of uh, kind of self-congratulations amongst the DIY community. You know, you're doing, it's eco-friendly yeah, yeah, to DIY, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, and I just wanted to tell you about this sort of ironic thing that I came across in a, a sewing magazine. What was it? I think it was uh, La Maison Victory uh, that I picked up recently. And it was an article to DIY some some flower vases and some, some mm -hmm. kind of table decoration. And it basically said, okay, first go and buy this type of tray from Ikea. And then you need to purchase this type of 
decal to put on it, la la la. And I thought, okay, well, if you have everything already on hand, then this is going to be maybe an eco-friendly upcycling. But if you're actually going out to Ikea to buy the materials and then buying additional <laughs> materials to add to them, and then you're going to put it on the table and go, look how eco-friendly I am. That I <laughs> right? So I think, you know, we have to think about DIY and the fact that it isn't always necessarily a sustainable practice, right? So how how do we how do we ensure that our that our making is sustainable? Look, um, I think it depends on firstly on what you're making, right? Um, so if we talk about just uh, let's just let's just talk about garment sewing, right? Because a lot of us uh, that's what a lot of us do. Um, I think that you really need to decide how much you're going to make. And there is always a difficult disconnect between how much you want to make or how much you, you think that you should have in your wardrobe and how much you want to sew, right? Um, because if you get really get into sewing, and I think someone mentioned to me like the sewing cycle, the first year you make everything out of, you know, like quilting cotton. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you, you deviate a bit more and you start to learn how to use, you know, drapier fabrics or um, et cetera, et cetera. Or you try and then make jeans or you try and make a coat. And then you want to make like everything, right? Mm-hmm. Because you feel that, oh, I have these skills, really cool skills now to make stuff. So I should just make everything. Yeah. And then, and then this is where, and then you discover social media and then by then you've signed up to like all the latest patent releases, all the fabric releases, and then you can just go nuts, right? Well, that's certainly what happened to me anyway. Um, oh yeah, me and, too. Guilty as charged yeah, for okay. sure. Yeah. <laughs> that is the yeah. cycle of sewing. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I think last year I made like 27 garments in five months. Wow which is just an insane amount of sewing. And that was actually kind of what prompted me to say, you know, I, I just need to stop this now because my my boyfriend at the time, uh, my, my current boyfriend, hopefully my boyfriend forever, <laughs> said, said to me, oh, another package came for you today. And I thought, do you know what? I can't even remember what I bought. Yeah. Like there'd just been so much stuff coming in that I couldn't remember what fabric it was I bought. And I looked and I went, oh yeah, right. What am I going to do with this? Oh yeah, I'll just I'll just put that in the queue for now, and then suddenly I've got you know storage boxes full of fabric that we stare at in the bedroom every day, <laughs> and it's not great. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the first thing to do is to actually think about how much sewing you want to do. And I wrote um, a socialist uh, a blog post on the socialist blog about this. Mm-hmm. And so my my top tips would be that firstly, you need to assess your lifestyle and your wardrobe. So for me. Um, on some days I'm a mom, on some days I'm an office worker, on some days I'm going out to dinner with my friends. doesn't happen very often, but you know. So to me, I need like several different types of clothing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure this applies to many people as well, because for example, your active wear is going to be different from your office wear to your going to the grocery store wear, right? So you need to work out what it is that you wear the most and you get the most use out of and what kind of clothes you want to be making, and then you can go from there, right? Mm -hmm. Then you can decide, you know, where you're going to actually spend your time and effort and what's worth your making. Um, After that, I think it's worthwhile thinking about what shapes and styles that you, what you know and what you like to wear. Um, And I find it really helpful to go window shopping in uh, in some stores and actually experiment with trying things on, Mm -hmm. because then, you know, at least you know whether you like it or not before you uh, before you fork out any money or, or time and effort on that. Yep, take your camera and, into the change room and... Oh yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. and decide decide if you like it, right? 
And then, um, and finally, then uh, shop your stash first before buying new fabric. And mm. that was kind of the genesis of um, the Make Your Stash uh, Instagram challenge, which I'm running at the moment mm -hmm. uh, with my friend um, Pilar in Spain. Right. Yeah. And how's that yeah. going? Have you had lots of participation on, on that? Yeah, we have actually. We've had um, over a thousand hashtags uh, in the first, I think it was in even in like the first six weeks or so. Nice. Um, so people have been really engaged with it, which is great to see. And because I believe that small change is better than no change, even if I've stopped, you know, 10 people from running out to buy the new latest thing for something they don't necessarily need, um, then that's already a win for me. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, yeah. A, it's a great idea because sometimes we just need the reminder and especially on social media, which is such a bastion of here's this new thing. Here's some new inspiration. Don't miss this fabric before it's gone. That sort of thing. It can really kind of get you into a frenzy of, you know, the fear of missing out, which is oh, yeah. the, oh, the yeah. major issue with social media is I don't want to miss out whether it's on fabric or the latest pattern. So I think it's a really great idea to just have reminders um, many of us know this, that we, you know, probably shouldn't be adding to our stashes uh, if we can <laughs> help it. Um, but the, the reminder is, is a good one. Um, and it did make me think, I thought, oh, make your stash. Okay, what can I actually did? And I haven't posted it yet, so I'm, I'll add a thousand and one hashtag um, yeah. coming soon. But yeah, it is, it is kind of a fun challenge to go and see what you have in the stash and shop from it rather than just continuing to shop online. And one of my problems is that my stash is in the basement in a cupboard, you know, <laughs> and I, what I need to do is I think a move into a smaller place. So I'd have to look at it all the time. And then that way I would know not to, you know, keep growing it. But when it's sort of more in front of your face and you're looking at it on a daily basis, I think then you, you remember, oh yeah, I do have something I can make that with as opposed to, Hmm, I'm going to make that. I'd better go look online and, you know, hit the order yeah. button. Right. Yeah. I think the other thing too, uh, the other reminder that I'd flag at this point is to say that, you know, sewing is not a competition. I mean, okay, fine, there are TV shows like The Great British Sewing Bee over here which, uh, you know, which say, oh, can you make X garment in X number of hours, right? Which, right. Is, which is really not helpful for this, for this mindset. But I think, yeah, if you're in competition with anyone, it's only yourself. And chances are, if you've been sewing for a while, then you have a lot of clothes, you know, to, for, for me personally, I find this whole idea of a wardrobe gap a bit of a myth because... I have a lot of clothes. I don't need, in inverted commas, you know, any more clothes. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's also a, a mindset to be uh, to 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 keep to keep with you as well. Um, you know, it's not going away anytime soon. Right. There'll always be more fabric. There'll always be more patterns. Oh, you know. Yeah. Than than you ever have time or inclination to to do. Yeah. And sometimes I I find a, a good thing to do if you really do want to kind of dial back on on the sort of need to get the new patterns and need to get more fabric is to actually unsubscribe from the emails. Oh, yeah, uh, you definitely. know, I, I've subscribed to so many just because I want to keep track of what's happening in the sewing community because we all love yeah. it. Right. That's why we're here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but sometimes it can be it's just being bombarded with this idea that, oh, there's something that you might miss if you don't jump on it now. So if you want to take a break, I think that's a good idea is just, you know, shut down the Instagram for a bit, unsubscribe from some emails for a while, and then just kind of shop from mm. your stash. 
Yeah. I found one other thing that's really helping me uh, personally at the moment is the idea of, you know, can I start it this week? Right. So and buying swatches because swatches are either free or cost very little. And then you can feel it and then you can think about it. And that almost gives me the same high as like buying a full length of fabric without the guilt of saying, oh, I really need to make this now. <laughs> Interesting. Well, let's talk about that high. Where does that come from? Like, why do we, when our stashes are full and we know we have so much to sew, like sometimes more than we'll probably sew in a lifetime, that we still go out and buy things or hit the, hit the buy button online? Yeah, as you say, I think it's um, a lot of it is uh, about fear of missing out um, because if you want to be the cool kid on Instagram, and I'm definitely not, um, but there are a lot of sewing bloggers who make all of the latest patterns and have all of the latest fabrics. And I think to see things like that on real people who aren't, you know, professional models for a brand, that really makes you think, oh, she looks great or he looks great. And I can look like that too. And oh my God, I can actually buy that and look like that and make it fit me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I think there's a, there's a lot of that as well. And, um, and I was reading a book recently, it's called Curing Affluenza, mm. which is... <laughs> I, love, which, I love that, that phrase, affluenza. I know, so affluenza, what, yeah. uh, what a great term, right? And uh, in there, Richard Dennis, he uses, he's the author, he uses so many great analogies. But um, one of the things that he, he, when he speaks about affluenza, it's buying stuff that you don't need um, to impress people that you don't know, mm -hmm. which then you can throw away afterwards, Right. And I think this whole impress and status is intrinsic within human nature. Um, he also uses the example of, you know, buying a car. A car is so much more than a vehicle to get you from A to B, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of difference between buying a Toyota Corolla and a Ferrari. But ultimately, they do the same job to get you from A to B. But the reason that you buy the Ferrari is, is okay, yeah, it's cool, but it's also status. It's so that you can drive around and say, hey guys, I own a Ferrari, I'm really cool. And we can apply that in so many situations. It's like, uh, you know, when you, when you look at, yeah, buying a luxury fashion, for example, why would you buy a bag that has Louis Vuitton or Chanel emblazoned all over it, right? Is it because it actually looks that good or is it because you just want to be able to say that I have a Chanel or I have a Louis Vuitton or whatever, you know, the brand might be. So I think that has to do, has to do with it as well. But again, it's intrinsic within human nature to want new things, to, to, to crave that kind of novelty. Um, and things like, uh, you know, clothes shopping or, or, or shopping for anything, to be frank, um, would, uh, would, would give you, would probably help give you that high. Mm. Um, and then you have the guilt afterwards <laughs> yeah yeah and it's that intrinsic need for something new coupled with the messages that we're bombarded with that you deserve this treat yourself you're gonna you know um what one of the things that just really makes me laugh and kind of cry is uh the home decorating magazines uh oh, that yeah. are very aspirational in nature of yeah. course <laughs> and they're always talking about entertaining and all of the accoutrements you need for entertaining and you know you start to read them and you think yeah I do need to have a set of matching blankets for my summer barbecue in case it gets cool and each of my guests can then have a matching blanket to put over their lap you know and, and then you kind of give your head a shake and you go 
A, like I rarely entertain, and B, my <laughs> friends don't give a shit if I have yeah. matching blankets <laughs> for them, you know? And so you just get caught up in this, and, uh, and, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 so easy to get caught up in. Uh, it's it's good to have something like a make your stash hashtag to kind of remind us to step back a little bit. Yeah. Another great hashtag I've seen recently is by Shawnee. Uh, she's a seamstress from, a, uh, from uh, the north of uh, England. And um, hers is called Sewing Leftovers. So she just started this as a personal challenge, but I think um, I'm starting to see some people uh, picking it up because I think she said that she has a tendency to overbuy fabric mm-hmm. and then always has this stuff left over. So what's she going to do? So she created herself a personal challenge called Sewing Leftovers, which I think is, uh, is, is really great as well. Yeah, that's um, great. Worth having, yeah, worth having a look on, on Instagram at uh, some of the stuff that people have been uh, making mm-hmm. uh, because of that prompt as well. Right. Well, let's talk about the idea of having leftover fabric after we make a pattern. Um, mm. So a lot of, uh, certainly the big four, or I don't even know what to call it anymore. Is it the big one? Is it the big four? Is it the, you know, the, the major commercial pattern makers? Anyway, oh, yeah, I've lost yeah. track of who owns who and how many there are. <laughs> um, yeah. But they tend to give uh, a, a cutting layout which tends to be almost virtually the same for almost all sizes. And I'm really on the smaller end of the spectrum, and so I'm usually cutting out a smaller or an extra small. And I find that if I ignore the pattern cutting layout, I can get those pieces out of a much smaller length of fabric than the pattern mm. told me I needed to have for it. Yep. I think uh, it's not just the the big pattern companies that do this. Um, I know a couple of people who who pattern cut for some of the smaller indie um, places, and they tell me that usually there's some kind of buffer put into it, mm-hmm. um, 20 or 30 centimeters, because what you don't want is people turning around and complaining to you that they haven't had and they haven't got enough fabric. Right. right. And that makes sense. Um, That's fair. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Right. And especially because there is such a wide range of sizes. I mean, I do get a bit uh, miffed sometimes when I see, you know, if it's one pattern that recommends two meters or two yards for every size, because that's obviously just not true, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> but I think a lot of uh, pattern companies do try and cater for, you know, if you're between a size A to B or A to D or whatever, then um, then you can use this much. If you're larger than this, then use then, then try this much. So I think uh, I think that definitely helps. But as you say, yeah, with the with the pattern layer, I think especially if you don't have like a, a checked or a directional print, um, as long as you're cutting on the grain, what I tend to do is I I I buy also a lot less. Um, so for a blouse or a shirt, um, then I'd probably buy one to 1.5 meters. For a dress, I will not buy any more than two meters. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm on the smaller size as well. And I absolutely refuse to make circle skirts um, because of the amount of fabric that it takes. Yeah, it really eats up fabric. Doesn't it? It's shocking <laughs> yeah. how much. Yeah, yeah. I so, need four um, meters to make this dress? What? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, like, how heavy is it as well when, mm. you, uh, when you pick it up, right? I think I had a jacket once that required... 4.6 meters of fabric. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. And <laughs> For a jacket, I can hardly even imagine where all that fabric yeah, yeah. goes. 4.6 meters of uh, stretch polyester crepe, triple crepe. So it was really, really heavy. But what had happened was that the pattern was cut in a way that it had a, a full-length kimono sleeve, right? So, yeah, the, the sleeve and the, and the front bodice part 
were all in the same piece of fabric, which mm -hmm. is why you had to sort of cut it all separately and the need for the 4.6 meters. But I mean, you could easily have just put a seam into there, which is what I ended up doing, into the uh, knee of the shoulder, and then suddenly you're back down to three. Right. You know, so but again, I think it's fine to overbuy fabric if you're happy to, you know, do something with the leftovers or you just don't care or you you really think that you need the security of having that mm -hmm. in order to make the garment and make it perfect if you if you make a mistake you need to recut a piece or, or whatever i think yeah. it's really like whatever you're happy with mm -hmm. yeah that's important because i mean there's nothing worse than you know making your dream garment with your dream fabric and you run out or you realize you haven't got enough space you know to yeah, fit all the exactly. pattern pieces exactly. so yeah that's that's okay and i think i it's worth pointing that out again, that having this discussion, I don't want people to think, oh, you know, I sew lots of things, um, or right. I sew frivolous things, or I buy more fabric than I know I need. I don't want people to think we're wagging our fingers and, you know, that's terrible. Because as we said at the beginning, you know, it's, it's about everybody's own personal comfort level about yeah. you know, what they can do about this if they wish to. And it's just worth mm. knowing what some of the issues are and what some of the potential solutions are, I think, that, that we can consider adopting, right? Yeah, um, I really don't like the, um, the, okay, you've probably noticed by now I am highly opinionated, but I really <laughs> don't like the eco-warriors who, you know, who either finger wag or say, thou shalt do this or thou shalt do that. I don't think that's helpful to anyone at all because we all have different priorities and, uh, and even the word, you know, ethical fashion or ethical fabric um, kind of conjures up images that will be different for everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. The word ethical itself is is quite an emotive kind of word, whereas the word sustainable is much less emotive in a way. Um, so, yeah, it's really it's really up to you. It's really on my blog when I write these articles about, you know, fabric or my opinion pieces. I try and kind of give both sides of the story because I think that's really important to understand that, look, there's goods and bads of everything Nothing is black and white, whether you're looking at a fiber, whether you're looking at a fashion brand, whether you're looking at even like a sewing pattern or, or a dress that you're making. Um, so you need to consider all of that and then think about what's important to you and mm -hmm. what you wish to do about it. Right. If anything at all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah fair enough. Um, I was actually just going to get back to the idea of the, the pattern layouts. And I know that there are some designers who are mm. deliberate. What's it called? It's called zero waste. Zero waste. Yeah. Right. So the idea is that the, well, well, tell us about that. Why don't you let us know what zero waste sewing is all about? Um, so to me, zero waste sewing means taking a piece of your fabric and using all of it for your garment so that you don't end up with, uh, with scraps and leftovers. Uh, so I think actually the, uh, if you're talking fashion terms, um, Balenciaga, when he was alive, he made this, um, he made this coat out of one piece of fabric. Um, there was an exhibition in, uh, in London, uh, last year, um, about, about Balenciaga and, and they showed an A4 piece of paper that you could cut up and sort of fold into the shape of a coat. Mm -hmm. So it does show you that you can actually make something from one piece of fabric. Um, which I think is really cool. But of course, there are challenges with this. So for example, if you wanted to make a 
fit and flare skirt or you wanted to drape something on the bias, then I think then that would be quite challenging. To You're out of luck, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's going to be really hard to produce something that's a zero waste. But um, my friend Charlie over at uh, Offset Warehouse, which is an eco textiles um, company, um, she's got a pattern there for a uh, for a zero waste dress, which is kind of like a... Uh, a tunic sort of thing with gathered shoulders and a v-neck mm-hmm. so you can kind of already see how that works right so yes. like two rectangles at the front and then you kind of split it at the top to to create the v yeah and um, you can cinch in the waist with a belt yeah, yeah, or with yeah. gathers or yeah 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 exactly exactly so um so yeah there are there is stuff like that out there but again i don't necessarily see this as the be all and end all no. especially from a design perspective um, and also, as we talked about before, you know, sometimes it's actually not bad having leftovers. Yeah. Um, if yeah. you can, if you want to do something with them later or, uh, yeah. Yeah. But it, it is an interesting concept. Um, and I, I saw that particular dress online and, you know, the only waste that was left over were a few shavings from the, from the serger or the overlocker. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so it's fascinating that you could take a, a length of fabric and, and have, you know, virtually no waste. And there are a few mm. designers that are doing that. And what I'll do is I'll put um, some links in our show notes. There's a really interesting project in New Zealand. I forget off the top of my head, I didn't write it down, but um, there's a number of different styles. There's a wrap skirt, there's a tube dress, which is mm. really fascinating. Um, there's uh, coats and the coats tend to be, as you can imagine, sort of cocoon-like boxy mm-hmm. styles. So, yeah. you know, if those aren't your styles, then, you know, this isn't going to work out for you and, th- and that's fine. But, um, but it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to check out. And yeah, I can absolutely. imagine that people, uh, this must be a great challenge for designers. How can I design a garment that doesn't use up anything? And I think what we're getting into is actually going back to almost ancient styles of clothing, if you will, because, (laughs) you know, weaving textiles was a big deal. I mean, it's still a big deal, but we kind of, you know, we don't really think about it now, but it was uh, all done by hand. And so you couldn't waste this precious fabric. And so many styles, the kimono is one, um, some medieval styles of, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. overcoats and things uh, really do have that uh, aesthetic that comes out of using the entire length of the cloth. Yeah, I think um, I spoke to someone recently. He was the uh, he was the head designer, he, the design director, I think is the name, um, at Hardy Amy's, which was a couture house uh, back in the uh, the nineties and two thousands. And um, but he still makes clothes. And he was showing me a skirt that he'd made. It was part of a top and a skirt set, which was in wool crepe, and it was like a full couture garment. Uh, it was backed with um, silk uh, georgette and then lined in silk satin. Um, but then there was a really strange seam that was running from the from the center back. It was like a diagonal kind of shape from uh, from the middle of the center back seam down to the to the side edge. And I said, "Hey, is that seam a design line or uh, or what is it?" And he said, "Oh, well, I just didn't have enough fabric, so you know, <laughs> I had to I had to put it in." He said, "It's quite common. It used to be quite common practice, as you say, you know, back in the days uh, of." Uh, medieval times or a few hundred years ago even uh, when weaving and uh, and textiles was actually still a big deal um, you had to use what you had right because it was really really expensive and hard to uh, hard to create and it's it was really interesting to see that you know some of those techniques are still in use today and to think actually do you know what even if I'm making a full circle skirt which I've already said I wouldn't but never mind <laughs> um, you can still just put a panel in it yeah. and it's fine yeah. you know <laughs> Yeah, it's not 
<laughs> no one's no one's dying because you know because your your skirt you know is made up of a number of different panels mm-hmm. that were not necessarily in the original pattern. Kate, have you seen the show? I think it's called A Stitch in Time. Uh, yes, yeah, I love it, that show. Of course, the, the sewing community would, would absolutely love this and has been talking about it for, for a while. But um, uh, each week they choose a garment from a work of art. So an old mm-hmm. one, you know, it might be from the 1600s or whenever it mm. was from. And then recreate it using all of the same methods that would have been available at the time, the same materials. Yep. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating. So it's, it's a great look at construction techniques uh, yeah. from way back when. Mm. And I think Ninya, who's the tailor on that show, she also talks about, you know, using a bit here to fill in this bit there because, you know, that's all that's all the fabric that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a really interesting, really super interesting show um, and just goes to show you that, yeah, you, you can practice slow sewing in inverted commas with a lot of hand stitching and a lot of handwork, but it still works. You know, mm-hmm. you can still do it. It doesn't, producing garments doesn't necessarily mean that you have to run up a jersey top in, you know, an hour or so. Although, my God, is it ever satisfying to run up a jersey top in an hour? <laughs> we all need those kind of projects once in a while for yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. So assuming we're not going to always use a zero waste pattern and mm-hmm. we're going to end up with those damn scraps that are come in ridiculous shapes that who knows what to do with. Um, I mean, and there's only so much scrap busting you can do. We can, you know, add in panels. We could add things like we can use scraps for pocket linings or waist facings in skirts or pants. We can add contrast patch pockets. Uh, what else can we do to to use up some of those um, smaller bits of of scrap? If you have kids or kids in your life, kids' clothes are awesome, mm-hmm. especially if you have cotton jersey or eighty card jersey for that matter, um, because they always take small pieces and kids will wear them, and it doesn't matter, and it's all great. So that that's my top tip. If you have kids in your life, then sew for them. Mm-hmm. Um, my second one, uh, so I've seen a lot of people using their leftovers to make things like oven mitts mm-hmm. um, to use as cushion stuffing or someone I think even made like an ironing ham, you know, like a mm-hmm. tailor's ham for supporting a shoulder and stuffed it with all the scraps. Um, people make clutch bags and handbags. They made bunting, which is the, uh, the mm-hmm. little flags on a string. Um, they make sun hats. Um, they make underwear and actually... If you use fold-over elastic in your underwear, you can actually just tie up the ends and then suddenly they're the ribbon hair elastics that get sold for quite expensive prices in right. a shop. So there you go. Um, so there's plenty of things that you can do, um, and but I think they tend to be like all small items. If you wanted to try and make a garment from your scraps, then you have, I think it's, you do need to try and accept that it's going to look a little bit patchwork and you're going to need to make that into a, a design feature, for example. Right. Right. Um, I was really pleased with the one that I did recently. It was, uh, I used a pattern for it. It was a style arc Lottie knit top and it's a mm-hmm. paneled top. Um, it has two vertical panels on the front and the back, as well as a sort of bottom horizontal panel. And mm-hmm. I used a mix of 
I was actually really pleased with the, the how small pieces I could get away with. And I could yeah. also use a woven on the bottom panel. So that was actually a garment that I was pleased with the outcome. It didn't look like I was trying to use my scraps, yeah. you know, because that, yeah, yeah. that can be a thing, right? If you don't get the sort of color matching or the, the weight of the fabric uh, yeah. matching up well, it can really look like something mm. new. Yeah. You were definitely putting scraps together. <laughs> so I was pleased with the, with the outcome yeah. of that. And then I was reading things like um, uh, you can weave your very tiny scraps into sort of ropes that can be then wound into baskets mm-hmm. or, and I could see that would be so cute for my, for my knitting. So maybe I will actually undertake that. Because I think the thing with the scrap busting projects is it's not always, sometimes it feels like you're doing this to be a good citizen. You know what I yes. mean? It's like, do, yeah, how absolutely. many woven yeah. fabric scrap rag rugs do I, does one person need? Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. none. <laughs> But uh, so, um, all right, so we're going to end up with scraps that we, no matter how good a citizen we're trying to be, we just Mm. need to get rid of them. So what's the best thing to do with the scraps that we we're not going to deal with? Okay, so I think that there is a uh, a lack of widespread understanding of what happens to your clothes or your textile scraps once you um, once you decide that you want to discard them, right? I've got a blog post in uh, in on this which I can uh, which I can give you the link to, um, but basically what happens with your clothes after you take them to a charity shop, for example, um, charity shops can't sell a lot of stuff. And I think the statistic is pretty scary. It's less, it's less than 50%, something like 30% of all the stuff that's given to a charity shop uh, can actually be resold in the, uh, in the store, mm. right? Um, so what happens then is that there's textile collectors um, who will take these clothes and then they'll sort them out. So, and then they either get exported overseas to secondary markets like in, uh, in Eastern Europe, in Africa, wherever, and then um, the ones that they don't think can be resold will tend to be shredded um, and reused. So in the UK, what you have is you've got the charity store, you've got these textile uh, recycling uh, banks or bins, if you like, um, usually outside like a, a supermarket um, where you can put in, you know, all manner of uh, used stuff, including your including your scraps. Your old socks as well. Yeah, your your old socks, your old underwear, your old whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So the point is that just don't... be don't, shy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't landfill them. Yeah, That's the point, right? And then that's what you can um, do with your scraps as well. Um, also, my friend Claire is in New Zealand, is starting up a website. It's called The Frayed. It's not live yet, um, but what it is, it will let you list out all the fabrics. It's a listing platform for all of your fabrics um, and yarns that you no longer want. And hopefully you can connect with another member on that website to either swap or buy or whatever. So it's kind of like eBay for for textiles, let's say, mm. um, which I'm, I'm really hoping that will be a successful project and that will take take off because so many of us buy fabrics and things from the same stores. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard to know on like an eBay or a Gumtree what's actually cool and what's not cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully if it's the sewing community or the knitting community, then, uh, then that should help as well. Mm-hmm. So one thing we haven't discussed yet, which I think is really important, is types of fabrics, uh, because mm. each type of fabric comes from a different source and has different manufacturing processes mm-hmm. that uh, some are worse than others. Um, cotton is very, very popular, but apparently it's uh, one of the most pesticide-intensive 
mm-hmm. crops as well as huge water usage to produce cotton t-shirts. Um, but can you, yeah. so you've done some research on this and you've written some blog posts on various types of fabrics. Mm-hmm. So could you run us through some of the fabrics that are maybe better than others, what the pros and cons of different types of fabrics are? Yeah. So I think when you look globally at the types of fibers that are produced, cotton and polyester are the king, right? Mm-hmm. I think the the cellulosic fibers, such as, you know, the rayons of the lyocells, they make up like less than, and the walls even, they make up less than 10% of global fiber production. So I think that's why you hear a lot about, you know, polyester and, and cotton. Now, I think we're a condition to believe that natural is better but mm-hmm. that's not necessarily true. And as I've mentioned before, there's goods and bads of everything. Um, and so if you look at something like a polyester, you know, sometimes that gets a, bit, gets a bad rep because you say, OK, well, polyester is synthetic. Um, it is produced from, you know, the oil industry. So you're effectively wearing plastic. Uh, when you wash it, it creates uh, microplastics. It doesn't break down in landfill, blah, blah, blah. Right. So but at the same time, polyester is really useful for outerwear. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go hiking in 10 layers of cotton jersey. Mm -hmm. That's just not going to work, right? Right. So I think it does have its uses. And um, so companies like Patagonia and North Face, and I think even in some of the main high street clothing stores, you'll start to see things made with uh, recycled polyester. On the recycled polyester, I think a lot of the feedstock from that is actually from uh, from plastic bottles. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, which is a good thing, but is it the be-all and end-all? I'm not really sure about that. Um, I think there is so much polyester now in the world that you really need to find a solution for manufacture polyester from polyester clothing. Right. That would be the that would be the most uh, sustainable uh, solution, rather than you know necessarily just using plastic bottles as, as feedstock. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been so much said about cotton. But I think there is also a political and historical aspect when you look at cotton production and why it's so popular today that you can't really ignore that. Um, but at the same time, you talk about water usage, you talk about chemicals, you talk about pesticides and farming and production. Um, they're all bads about cotton. But at the same time, it's a really useful fibre, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And people are used to it and people like it. I like it. I'm sure you probably like mm-hmm. it. Um, yep. If I'm sewing with a jersey, I'd take cotton jersey over uh, over anything else, over a rayon jersey, for example. Um, but on the cotton side, I think what you can do is to look at um, look at trying to buy organic cotton, for example, where then you know that there are you know fairer conditions um, have been met. Um, the farming is organic. There's been no pesticides. Da 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 da. And so the um, and so the list um, goes on. And that's actually an important point about organic is that Mm. we think of it as meaning, okay, no chemical pesticides were used in the production Mm -hmm. of it, but organic can also extend to labor practices. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So um, it's a particular certification that you have to look for, which is called GOTS, the Global Organic uh, Textiles, I think it stands for. Mm -hmm. Um, But that one encompasses, um, yeah, as you say, labor practices and the social issues as well as, um, as well as just the pure production, um, production aspect. The other one um, that you can have a look at is called Ecotext, O-E-K-O Text 100. But that I think only looks at the safety of the finished product. So the finished fabric. Um, So it doesn't consider 
Um, so yes, it's not hard. It doesn't have chemicals that are harmful to human health, et cetera, et cetera, but it doesn't necessarily consider the, uh, the production methods. Okay. So yeah, there is a, a consultancy called Made By, which has produced a, um, a fiber rating based on a number of a sustainability criteria, such as, you know, emissions, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, which I think is very useful. And that sort of, that rates, um, the recycled nylons and polyesters, the organic, uh, linens, hemp's, and the recycled cottons and wools as being the most sustainable, and then the rayons uh, and bamboos as being the least sustainable. Can you tell us a bit more about rayons and bamboos and how those are are, mm. are made? Because, I mean, I, I read bamboo jersey and I think, well, you know, I've heard things, bamboo, it's, it's a grass, it, it replenishes itself so easily, you can harvest it and the next year it's all back again. It's not like growing a tree grows fast, et cetera, et cetera. So what is it about rayon and bamboo that makes it the least sustainable? They all belong to a family of fibers uh, called cellulosics, right, which is a, a, material inside the, a material inside the plants. So it's a tree-based product and what happens is that you harvest the, wood, the, the trees, you have to cook them with steam and chemicals to obtain a pulp, and then you need to dissolve the pulp. <laughs> and so what happens then is that you put in a bunch of chemicals um, in with the pulp to dissolve it, and then you put it through a showerhead type of a, a, a spinner to actually create the fibres. So it's this dissolving pulp stage um, with the chemicals in it um, so I think some of the chemicals include uh, carbon disulfide or sodium hydroxide, um, which is the eco-unfriendly nature of the manufacture of these uh, of these products. So whilst bamboo is touted as, oh yeah, it grows so fast and blah, blah, blah. But the problem with bamboo is that it's just the feedstock and ultimately it goes into the same process as viscose rayon. Um, and that's kind of the great myth about bamboo. And it doesn't have any of the antibacterial properties that uh, people love to uh, greenwash about. Uh, unfortunately, there's been no evidence that I've um, that the experts have come across to uh, to, to verify that, uh, mm. which is a shame. But mm. um, nevertheless, there we mm. are. Yeah. So this is uh, so now I need to rethink my choices too because I always thought, oh, bamboo, that sounds great. So yeah, it's good to know. It's it's really easy to just kind of get caught up in the you know, oh, I heard that this is a good thing, and without all of the details and mm -hmm. from the feedstock, as you say, to the manufacturing process. And part of the manufacturing process is is dying. I don't know if you know too much about that, but mm, presumably natural colored linen and cotton is uh, easier, more sustainable than, uh, yeah. you know, bright purple or something, right? Mm. I'll come back to the dying in a second, but, oh, sure. um, but it's not just, it's not completely all bad in the, uh, in the viscose uh, rayon space. Oh, good. There is, there is a product you might've heard called Lyocell, uh, which you might know as Tencel. Yeah. Um, and that has the same kind of process but it uses I think the the chemicals they use are not supposedly non-toxic and it operates in a closed loop type of system so you can probably be pretty happy uh, oh, good. by buying Lysol. And so by closed loop you mean that the chemicals that are used to process it do not are not just dissipated after use into the environment Correct. but rather they're recovered and reused. 
Yes, correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay, mm-hmm. so yay, Tencel and Lyocell. Okay, great. Yay, go for it, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't find a source, a, a source in the UK that sells, you know, a whole range of tensils. So, you know, if you've got anyone listening that can point me to one, I'd be very pleased to, to hear it. Yeah, I've come across a, a few. Well, we'll do some research and, and put some links in the um, in the show notes. But yeah, if anyone listening knows of, of good sources for some of these materials we're talking about, we'd love to, we'd love to mm. uh, compile a list for sure. Yeah. Um, back on the dyeing, um, I haven't looked too much into this, even though it's on my list um, of many, many things to look into. But what I can say at the moment is that uh, the World Bank has a statistic, which is that 20% of industrial wastewater pollution is from fabric finishing and dyeing. Oh, my gosh. 20%. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, I had a feeling it was probably bad, but 20% yeah. is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. And I read from somewhere else, I think it was called the website called Trusted Clothes, which said that approximately 10 to 15% of dyes are released into the environment during the dyeing process. Right. Um, so you'll you'll probably have seen, uh, you know, news stories about uh, rivers turning red and blue, et cetera, et cetera, from, uh, from the effluence um, or illegal dye dumping, um, which is uh, which is not great. Yeah, yeah. And anyone who's done any home dyeing, I mean, you dip it in the vat of dye and then you rinse it out for a hundred years <laughs> before it. Oh my it, God. Right? Yeah. Right. And it's all yeah. going down the drain and you're using so much water to rinse it out. And yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you can imagine that on a large scale industrial mm-hmm, level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even um, I was trying to save an old linen dress that I had and um, because I'd sewed down the facings on uh, on the neck facings um, on this blue linen dress and because blue is a color that's prone to fading it left me a mark mm. so, so I really wasn't happy about that so I unpicked the facing and then I threw the whole thing into the uh, into the dye bath and um, it's the first time I've tried to dye anything and yeah the sheer amount of water as you said is just immense and at some point I thought okay you know what let me just take it out and dry it so I did that and then the next day I thought okay let me just put this back in I'm not going to put it in the washing machine, so let me just rinse it out first. And so much stuff still came out of yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, and um, from my reading of my limited reading of dyeing, I think somebody also said that well, actually, you need to look at the amount of dyeing you're doing because if you're using a lot of salt, if you have a septic system, that may not be able to cope with that amount of uh, salt. Right. Um, yeah, good point. So again, there's goods and bads of everything. You know, it's great to be able to dye something and say, you know, I've saved my dress and now I don't need to throw it out or give it to someone else. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's but, a sustainable practice right there. But, but the downside <laughs> is the dye. Yeah. And so, it, you know, it's true. And if you're feeling overwhelmed, it's, you know, there's there's only so much we can do. We can be armed with the knowledge and we can make choices uh, based on that. And uh, we just each all have to be happy with their own choices. Yeah, and, you, you, you know, what's done is done. And I think that the best thing that you can do is just to look at what you have and use what you have mm-hmm. and try and be happy with what you have. And I know that's really at odds with the, um, with the joy that sewing can bring, but I think that the whole mindful practice and conscious sewing and conscious wardrobe is really starting to, you know, come into effect within the sewing community. And I'm really happy to uh, to see that because, you know, doing all of these uh, things like, you know, oh, what's a good eco textile to use? How can I upcycle? How can I do this? How can I do that? But ultimately, if you just use less, then that's probably going to be the greatest solution 
of all. And that applies to, you know, fast fashion, fast food, fast, you know, whatever you want, really. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great, I think that's a great place to leave it, because I, I think that's really good advice. But before I let you go, Kate, um, just wondering, what's on your sewing table these days? What are you working on? Um, I'm actually having a bit of a personal style crisis at the moment. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> so, I mean, I am, you know, I am, I've been a mom for almost two years and the reality is that I can't wear the hot pants that I used to wear in my twenties, <laughs> right? <laughs> Darn it all. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's horrible. And, uh, you know, and at the same time I work in an office, I work in a bank, which is semi-formal, but at the same time, I really hate wearing suits mm-hmm. um, because it's just not me and it's, you know, quite formal and, and, and it's just not really nice. Um, but my, the reason I started sewing was because I wanted some well-fitting trousers and five years later, I still have not reached Trouser Nirvana. So, um, and yeah, I can relate. <laughs> so, but I've really gotten into the Japanese pattern books lately because they kind of look like coffee table magazines. They're so pretty. Oh, they're so beautiful. Um, I know, I know. And I really like the silhouette with the fitted shoulder and bust and then the, uh, and the looser through the waist, um, mm-hmm. even though there is a slight risk of looking like a sack of potatoes. Um, so I'm trying a, a trouser pattern from there, hoping that it would suit my, my shape a little bit more. And of course, it was a disaster, but Aww. I'm sewing them up anyway. And um, we'll see how I can modify the pattern and, um, and, and try and save it. But yeah. we'll see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, oh, not, that's, it's not That's great. fascinating. I recently did a spate of, of Japanese pattern book buying. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm sort of drawn to the minimalist aesthetic. And I have um, some, well, it's actually a skirt, but it doubles as harem pants. So it's mm. a skirt with a sort of U-shaped notch uh, in the front and the back and on the bottom mm-hmm. hem with a couple of buttons. So you can wear it just as a sort of just regular skirt or yeah. you could button up the U-shaped notches together at the front and then together at the back to make a sort of skirt with a kind of mm. more fitted hemline. Or yeah. you can button the front to back and mm-hmm. turn it into a very, very loose, very low crotched harem pants which may be horrifying, but (laughs) for some reason I'm drawn to this and I have a beautiful uh, linen uh, that I'm going to try it out with. So fingers crossed. That's the Mm. other thing about sewing, right, is, uh, you know, sometimes you sew a disaster and you just have to, uh, hopefully you sew it at least to the point where somebody else might be able to enjoy it and then you can donate it to, uh, uh, you know, to um, a secondhand clothing store and maybe someone will get some enjoyment out of it. Uh, Or it could become maybe fabric for your next toile or you can turn that mm-hmm. sucker into scrap patch pockets <laughs> yeah yeah do you know what though I think even with the sewing disasters and stuff that we have sewing is an addictive hobby right mm-hmm. and over time I think as you sew more and you get better at it and you continue sewing for the next 40 50 years that's probably still going to be better than buying like poorly fitted ready to wear clothing and being frustrated by it. Yes. So I think in that way, yes, sewing can be uh, definitely a sustainable uh, sustainable practice. I think we just need to be careful that it because doesn't become DIY fast fashion if right. fast fashion is what you're trying to uh, is what you're trying to avoid. But right. um, I'm also about to embark on a 100-hour tailoring project again, so uh, that will be a classic English tailor jacket um, probably in some kind of tweed 
um, and it will be completely the only machined things on it will be the side seams so everything else will be you know hand canvassed and wow fantastic so. I cannot wait to see that and I hope that you'll post some in progress updates for yeah, us I on think that. I think it's a really good demonstration of uh, of slow sewing, uh, the couture the couture way of doing things. Not to say that I'm particularly good at it, but um, but yeah, I'll try and do a series of blog posts because I think that might be interesting for oh for yeah people for to sure see. yeah I would yeah. absolutely love to see that. Well, it's mm. been such a pleasure to meet you, Kate, over over Skype, and uh, thank you so much for your expertise here. This has been an eye opening discussion for me, and I think it gives gives me a lot to chew on and think about as I keep going with this hobby that I love so much. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clothes Making Mavens podcast. For more information and more episodes, visit clothesmakingmavens.com. We would love to hear from you. You'll find options for sending us an email, leaving a comment, or even a voicemail on clothesmakingmavens.com. Hope to hear from you soon, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.